So you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1, and if, you're, if you have your physical Bible, you can also put a finger in Genesis chapter 38. We'll be studying those two passages today. But I want to welcome everyone to December of 2023. Are you ready for the Christmas season? Everyone have your shopping done and your Christmas trees out and your house is decorated? All right, just by show of hands, is there anyone who has not gotten their Christmas tree out yet? Is there any, a number of people here. Okay, uh, do you have plans to get the Christmas tree out, or is it just, you're, you've just, not this year? Um, is there anyone that plans to do it, has a tradition to do it, say, on a Christmas Eve? Are there any Christmas Eve people here? Okay, all right. Um, well, we got ours out uh, right after Thanksgiving, and uh, one year, though, we did put it out in, at the beginning of November, because I figured uh, we have a fake tree, so it's not going to die, and I figured if, uh, if we like all the lights and everything, why not an extra month, right? Just why not? And then we sometimes accidentally leave it going into January or February, so, so we get a good season of Christmas time at our house. So to start out this morning, I want to tell you about a, a Facebook group that I'm part of, and uh, as the only full-time pastor here at the church, there's a lot of different areas that I work in and, and participate in in some capacity, and, and one of those areas over the years has been the, the sound and the media ministry here at the church. And so a number of years ago, I joined a Facebook group that was on the topic of Church, Sound, and Media, and I've learned a lot from those folks, but really it's a group of a lot of people that are extremely technically proficient at the sound booth, and then there's me. So, so I'm not always able to contribute much, but I am learning a lot from them. But they also have a little bit of a, of a mischievous side, and so I came across this post, uh, I thought it was humorous, that I, that I want to start out with, and so someone uh, on Friday posted asking, saying this, I know we have some great Photoshop peeps here, and I'm using this photo this Sunday at the, uh, during the service, but don't like the photo that I was given. Can anyone remove the background, people? I just need two soldiers. Thanks in advance, and God bless. And, and I know from experience, anytime someone asks for Photoshop help, you're going to get the help, and then you're going to get the not-so-helpful help. Uh, so let me share a couple of ones that came up here. Uh, this first one is uh, a black background. And so this is, I guess, a good start, right? They got everybody out. They got it. So good job to that person who did it. And then we have the white background. Now, if you can see, a little sh- sloppy with the shoes, but not, not terrible. But then this guy just got lazy. <laughs> and he just started scratching things out. Uh, He is not technically proficient in Photoshop. And then the next guy, he totally missed the point here. Uh, He started taking people out, but he took the wrong people out, including this one here, totally missed the point and shared this one. Um, And then it just goes downhill from here. And so here we have uh, them adding, it, adding them in to some, some running and some exercising, but they didn't even make them run, so it sort of clashes, doesn't it? Uh, and then, of course, somehow Bernie had to get into, oh, here we go, Bernie had to get into the picture. 
So there's Bernie in the picture hanging out with them. And then finally, someone posted a normal one, and they did a very good job. So the picture turned out rather nicely, wouldn't you say? Um, you, You see, just like in the Facebook group, though, and like in our own families, there's always that crazy person or crazy people, right? And, and some of your families probably experienced that at Thanksgiving when you had the family over. And so that Uncle Jim or that Auntie Lori just doesn't seem to be running on the same track as everyone else, right? And in our new series that we're going to be looking at through the month of December, it's titled uh, A Crazy Christmas Reunion. And we're going to be seeing that Jesus had some crazy people in his family tree. And so over the next four, mu- uh, four weeks, we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to be focusing on a few of the crazy ones, and really just a few of the crazy stories that come out of that genealogy. And then we'll be talking about why this is important to the genealogy and why Matthew is bringing it up. And so to begin, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 3. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Judah and his brothers. And so let's remember Judah here because he's going to be important. And Judah, the father of Perez, so Perez is going to be important at the end, and then Tamar, Tamar here. And so as Matthew begins and opens up the book of Matthew here, his gospel, he begins with a genealogy. It's not the most exciting way to start a story, right? But this is an important part. Because the genealogy, all those names that we see, a lot of them then leading up through the Old Testament up to the time of Jesus, link to Jesus to the story of the Old Testament, to the rest of the Bible. And so what we're essentially seeing is how Jesus comes from the Old Testament. And we can see that all the way back to Abraham, if we looked at the story of Abraham even before that, that Jesus comes out of that and that he was planned and anticipated. Additionally, Matthew also chooses to mention some unnecessary names. And so in that time, the genealogy only contained the male names. But as we're going to see in verses 1 through 17 over the next few weeks, there's five different female names either mentioned or referenced to. And so several of them, their stories are not typically ones you would want to admit are part of your family history. And yet here Matthew points them out. And that certainly describes the person that we're going to be looking at today, and that's Tamar. And so why is Matthew pointing Tamar out? What's the big deal with Tamar? And so to answer that, we need to now go back to the Old Testament and look at Genesis chapter 38, and take a look at this very crazy story of Tamar. This is a story with some questionable actions and and, and subjects, and so I'm going to just make a promise that I'm going to keep this as best as I can PG rated. And so you don't have to worry that if your kids or your mom or your friend are next to you, you don't have to start blushing and looking down, okay? 
So we're going to do the best we can with this. But this is coming right out of the Bible. So, hey, if, if you're mad at someone, talk to God, okay? Genesis 38 takes place during the, the story of Joseph. So Joseph's story, where he's sold into slavery and then becomes a ruler, that happens both before and after what takes place in chapter 38. And so Judah is one of the, the, the main characters of 38, and he's Joseph's brother. And so after Judah helps get rid of Joseph, this is what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. Let's stop there. So while Joseph is being sent into slavery, his brother Judah goes off, and what does he do? He goes off and he gets married. So two, two very different paths there. But who do, who do we see that he marries? It's a Canaanite woman named Shua. And the problem is, is that the Jews were prohibited from marrying non-Jews. And this was not because God does not like non-Jews. In fact, if we were to study Genesis, we would see that Abraham and, the, and really the, the Israelites were called out to be God's people so that they could be a light to the non-Jews. So God loves the Jews, but at that time, they were expressly prohibited from intermarrying because if you were to marry a non-Jew, you would essentially be bringing in pagan, non-Jewish beliefs into your family. And sadly, that's exactly what happened. And so Judah marries, and her, him and his wife have three sons. And the order is Ur, and then Onan, and then Shelah. And as these children get a little bit older, uh, Judah arranges for the oldest one, Ur, to marry the, a woman named Tamar. But then something bad happens. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We don't know what happened or what Ur was doing that was so bad, but now we know Ur is gone. He's dead. So now we're going to just take a, a little break for just a second from the story because I, I need to tell you uh, it, uh, something that's called the Leveret marriage. A custom and then also what the Jews were uh, told by God to do. And it would eventually be written down in the law later on in Deuteronomy chapter 25. But the Leveret marriage was something that uh, was, it was aiming to protect women during that time. So during that time, women had very few rights. And so if her husband died, then really the best thing that could happen to her would be for her to marry someone else. The second best thing would be for her to have a, a, a son. And the, lever, the leveret marriage sought to uh, fix that problem. And what I'm about to explain to you is going to sound very strange to our modern ears. And so I, I recognize that, but this was a custom in that period and, and really all around that region at that time. And so the custom was that if the, if the man died, then the man's brother would then step in and marry the widow, his, his sister-in-law, so that she could then produce an heir. 
And if you remember from the book of Ruth, at the very end, Boaz couldn't marry Ruth until he had talked to a closer relative, and that was because of the, the, the custom of the leveret marriage. And so that's what Judah, the father, does. He goes and he tells son number two, Onan, to go and fulfill his leveret marriage duties. So Onan now, I'm not going to read this part, but he publicly follows through. He obeys his dad. But privately, he does it in a way that brings him pleasure without getting Tamar pregnant. And most likely, this was because if Tamar did get pregnant, then since she was originally married to the oldest, then her son, Tamar's son, even if he was produced through Onan, her son would get more of the inheritance than Onan's son through uh, his own wife. And so, in, in other words, Onan was being selfish. And God did not approve of what Onan was doing here. And so, verse 10 And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And so now we have not one, but two sons that are dead in connection to Tamar. And so guess how excited Judah is to give Tamar to his third and final son? Not at all. Not at all. Instead, Judah essentially hides her away and thinks out of sight, out of mind. That's essentially what he's doing. And so now we get to verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. And so Tamar uh, went and remained in her father's house. And Tamar waits and waits and waits. And in, instead of explaining what happens next, I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to read a chunk of the rest of the, of the chapter here. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. Then Judah was comforted. And he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, and he went to a friend, Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's robes and covered herself in a veil, wrapping herself up, and, um, and sat at the entrance of uh, Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not given to him in marriage." When Judah saw her, he thought he was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until I send it, until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Let's pause there for a moment. So Judah wants to sleep with her, but he doesn't have cash on hand, or, or we may say goat on hand. And so he promises to pay her back. 
Uh, Tamar wants to hold on to something until he pays her, though really, as we'll see, she has something else in mind. Uh, But he gives her his signet and cord, and the cord, those were most likely used to press into clay, soft clay, that could be used to give his identification. And so basically what Tamar is asking for is to hold on to his Old Testament version of his driver's license. And so he gladly hands it over. They do the deed, and she does indeed get pregnant. And later on, Judah then sends a friend over to give her the goat. But this mysterious lady has disappeared. And then this happens. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by uh, immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. So according to Old Testament law, the, her offense was not something that would lead to being burned. So Judah here is showing some sort of righteous and hypocritical anger at Tamar. Verse 25, and as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man who belong, who these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified and said, and identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. So once Judah realized what happened, he went from angry to at least somewhat convicted. And her trickery suddenly seemed justifiable to him because of his own deception. Now we're going to stop there in the story. And I just want to point out the the obvious here. This is a weird story, isn't it? And I was, I was thinking through weird stories in the Bible. And, and this is probably top ten, maybe even top five weirdest stories in the Bible. And it becomes even weirder by the fact that the story is highlighted in the connection to the birth of Jesus. After all, Matthew could have followed the socially accepted practice and just stuck to the male names. And just said, Judah, the father of Perez, and moved on. But he points out Judah that he had the baby through Tamar. So why is he doing this? Why is Matthew in the genealogy pointing out Tamar in the story? And so for the rest of the time, I'm going to talk about what we can learn from this story. And then also talk about why this is important to the lineage of Jesus and, and in reality, important to us as well. And so here's the first thing that I want you to know from this story, and that is the danger of mixing with sin. You see, Judah's life was a mess. But it was a mess because of his very poor decisions. And so, first of all, and this happened before chapter 38, he goes and he attacks his brother, out of jealousy, and sells him off to be a slave. And then, where did he go after that? Not home to his father, 
But he heads to a Canaanite city and marries a Canaanite woman. She worshipped idols, not Yahweh. And this led to a further downward spiral of his own spiritual life, but also the life of his children as well. So do you get a sense here of the downward spiral that Judah took? Never in a million years did Judah wake up one day and say, one day, I want my children to be struck down by God because of their evilness, and I want to go and impregnate my daughter-in-law. He never said that. He never thought it, yet he lived it one choice at a time. How many of us fall along that same path? Where we're, we're like, we will never, we would never do that. Yet our actions, one choice, one small step at a time, lead us in that direction. Paul Harvey tells a story uh, many years ago, and, and uh, so when I grew up, my dad would drive me to school, and every morning he would turn on Paul Harvey on uh, the radio. And so we, we would listen to Paul Harvey both coming to school with the news and then coming home as well. And so uh, when I came across this story, I said, I, I got to use it in honor of my childhood. But Paul Harvey one time tells a story of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. And first, the Eskimo takes a very sharp blade and coats it with animal blood. And then he allows it to freeze. And then he adds another layer of blood and then another layer of blood until the blade is completely concealed by the frozen blood. Next, the hunter puts the knife out, blade up in the frozen ground, and leaves it overnight. Wolves have a keen sense of smell, and so when the wolf follows his nose to the scent, he begins licking the blood. Tasting the fresh blood, he begins to lick faster and faster, and those wolf cravings for blood become so great that he doesn't notice the razor-sharp sting of the blade on his own tongue. He also doesn't notice that the warm blood that he's tasting now is not the blood of something else, but it's his own blood. And his appetite just craves more and more and more until the next morning he is found dead in the snow. And church, that's a picture of us when we are consumed by our own sinful cravings. And listen, the the best and easiest time to prevent this from happening is before you take the first lick. So I want to encourage you, take sin seriously. Get sin out of your life. If you're thinking, oh, that that, that little sin, no one will notice, it's not a big deal, it's not hurting anyone, and, and, and you may be right about all of that, but it will lead to the next, and to a greater sin, and to the next, and to an even greater sin, until you're down a path that you don't want to go or never anticipated going. So don't mix with sin. Here's the second thing that we can learn, and another reason why this story is referenced in the genealogy, and that is the redemption from sin. You see, in the last few verses of chapter 38, I won't read them, but we see that Tamar is pregnant and gives birth to twin boys, Perez and Zerah. 
And this matches exactly with what is written in Matthew. Where he says, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. So this shouldn't come as a surprise to us since we started out in this passage. But this idea is still pretty shocking here. That Jesus, the king of the world, is the, the, the one who created all things and the one through whom this world is created and holds the world together. The one who lived a sinless life and died for the sins of the world chose to come from a line of blatant, reprehensible sinfulness. Why would Jesus do that? That's because Jesus is not afraid of the sins of people. That you can bring the most despicable sin into his family line. And Jesus says, doesn't bother me. Doesn't bother me. You see, Jesus is in the business of redeeming sinful people. He's in the business of redeeming sinful people. How many of you have heard uh, the phrase, when life gives you lemons, what do you make? Coke? No, you make lemonade. Yeah. And so this came to mind uh, as I was writing this part of the sermon here. And it made me think about how often we give ourselves the lemonade. That, that we put lemons too often in our own life. And through sin, through bad choices, we pour just a bunch of sour lemons right into our life. I hope this is close here. Here, right into our life. Now, not many of us like to drink straight lemon juice, do we? Uh, it's just too sour. But is there anyone who would like to come up and demonstrate what it tastes like to drink uh, lemon juice? Anyone love the sour stuff? I know my son does. Paul, where are you at? All right, Paul, come on up here. All right, so Paul's going to help me out with this. Now, he's probably not the greatest example because he literally will drink uh, straight straight lemon juice. But go ahead and, and take a little sip here. All right, bad example. Bad example. Um, let's, uh, why, why don't you pretend to taste it again and make it pretend it's all sour? Oh, all right. It is sour, but most of us, I'm not going to bring anyone else up here, but most of us would have a different face, wouldn't we? Because it, it's, it's sour like that. Uh, but the, the beauty, and you just stay there. The beauty of the Christian life is that we don't have to get rid of the lemons in our life, of the sourness in our life before we come to Jesus. Jesus isn't shocked by our sinful sourness of our life. And when we come to him and give him our life, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness based on his death from 2,000 years ago. And suddenly, that sour life is made sweet. I put together before the service some uh, sugar and water. And uh, here, you can, why don't you come on over here to this side here so people can see you. So uh, let me see your cup here. So y- you have this, this lemon here that most people don't like. And then 
adding in the, the sugar water here. Okay, tell me what you think. It's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You can go ahead and you can take that back to your seat. Share, share it with uh, your mom, okay? That lemonade, once it's put together, is not perfect. It's still sour, isn't it? But God, through Jesus, he, Jesus turns that sourness into, adds what is needed, and then turns our life around. And now it's much, much better. And that's why having Judah and Tamar in his family line, and his family tree, is no concern to him because sin is no match for the one who conquered sin on the cross. So listen, I know we're in the Christmas season and and this is not a very Christmassy message. And we're normally used to talking about Christmassy topics. But the reality is that Jesus, at what we call Christmas, came from a messy family line. And came into this world and came into a messed up world to save us. And our focus as Christians should not exclusively be on giving presents to others, on Christmas trees, on snow, or even on nativity scenes. Because Jesus came as a baby on a rescue mission and he accomplished that mission. And that truly is what Christmas is about. Yeah, at Christmas we celebrate his coming. But why did he come? He came to rescue us. And so the story of Tamar, no big deal to him. So let's remember that Christmas equals a rescue mission for the world and for you and me. I'm going to give you one more thing that we can learn from this story and really another important reason why It's referenced in the genealogy, and that is God's sovereign hand. Sovereign is a fancy word that we often use in Christian circles, but it basically just means uh, ruler or in control. So God is ruling over or in control of every situation. And one person wrote this about Tamar. He writes, uh, Tamar reminds the reader that God will accomplish his purpose even if he has to use a Canaanite woman to do it. So if, if I had time, I would walk you through the Old Testament and tell you about how th- th- there's prophecies of Jesus both before Tamar and after. And you would see that in the midst of all the messiness in the midst of all the unplanned, so to speak, disasters, in the midst of all the sinful failures, God still accomplishes his plan. He has never seen something happen that leads him to say, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do now? Nothing is outside of what he is in control of. And in every situation, and in the situation of Judah and Tamar, There was plenty of deception. There was plenty of sin and immorality to go around. But did that stop God? Did that mess up his plan? No. 
because he is sovereign. He's the ruler. He's in control. And so as we close, I want this to be an encouragement to us as we go out of here in a moment. That during messy times in life, he's in control. When things don't go your way, when, when you give in to temptation and when you were, oh, you just knew you wouldn't do it again and you did. When life, so to speak, brings you lemons, when suffering and hurt come your way, I want you to, I want to encourage you to trust God. Trust God that he's in control. And you may never understand what he's doing, but trust that he knows what he's doing, even if you don't understand what he's doing. Trust that no situation is too difficult for him. And that trust starts with giving him your life with putting your faith in him. So if you have come to church today and have never given him your life as Lord and Savior, then I want to encourage you. That, that's the first step that you need to take. That's the first step of trust to say, Jesus, come and take over my life. But then that continues every day after that. Because every day, Christians, you're going to be tempted to not trust God, to trust in yourself, to trust in something else. And every day you need to make that decision to trust in him and to trust in his faithfulness. So we're going to go.